2: Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove and I edit the magazine. This is the 2nd of our February 2012 podcasts. But, more interestingly, for those of you who have a natural affinity towards anniversaries, this is the 100th edition. We are now venerable indeed, and we wouldn't have got this far without you taking the time and trouble to download and listen to our interviews. So thank you all for your support. Before we get on with this centenary edition, I ought as ever to remind you that BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Our website is historyextra.com and we're on Twitter at twitter.com slash historyextra or facebook.com slash historyextra. The current issue of the magazine, for those of you in the UK, is a corker with a roundup of the questions that need answers about the British Empire, a feature on Tudor martyrs, Charles Dickens on trains, the battle for scientists after the Second World War and a short history of sport... Now, this week we have just one interview, but it's a special extended one involving you, the listeners. So coming up, we have... If I ever thought that we
3: got to the moment where we knew everything there was to know about the First Crusade and everyone was going to agree, I would actually be quite horrified, because it would
2: kill it as a subject. That was Tom Asbridge of Queen Mary University of London on the Crusades. Just before we start with the interview with Tom, I have a special anniversary offer for you. To celebrate our 100th podcast, we're offering all UK listeners an opportunity to sample BBC History magazine for free. Simply call 0844-776-0306. That call will cost between 3.5 and 5p a minute from a BT landline in the UK. Other operators' charges may vary. The offer is only available for UK delivery addresses and is subject to availability, so call us quick to get hold of your free issue of BBC History magazine. That offer ends on the 29th February 2012. Now, Tom Asbridge is a reader in medieval history at Queen Mary University of London. He is an expert particularly on the Crusades, and his three-part series entitled The Crusades has just aired on the BBC. As you might recall from previous podcasts, I've been asking you to tell me what questions you would like to ask Tom Asbridge. You were not shy in coming forward, so I met Tom armed with a sheaf of questions and put them to him cold. This is the result, so listen now to our very first Ask the Historian podcast interview. So we've got lots of questions, uh, some from Twitter, some from email. So I will, uh, I've sort of tried to order them vaguely chronologically. Um, the first question is is from Twitter. It's from uh, Marlin Books Limited, which I assume is a, there's a person behind that. But uh, the question is, what do you think was the principal motivation for the Crusades? Actual re- religious concerns, land, or long-term prosperity? Now that's a, a question that you did consider in your series, but perhaps you'd like to run over the answer again.
3: Well, I guess one of the things we should say. Right from the start, if we're talking about something like the First Crusade, is this there are so many people who enlist in the First Crusade, somewhere between 60 and 100,000 people, that I think it would be impossible to come up with a singular answer to say this is the sole purpose, the sole motivation for every single human being that participated in this massive venture. Um, similarly, I guess I'm also of the mind that it's, it's not in our own world now always necessary to only have one purpose for doing something. I think that's also very, very much true in the Middle Ages. And I think one of the things that's most fascinating about the Middle Ages, one of the things that that keeps me interested in it as a a period of history is the kind of the moments that gel with what we're familiar with today and the moments which are unfamiliar. And I think one of the things that's striking about the First Crusade is there are elements in motivation that seem to be uh, immiscible, things that couldn't be coexisting at one and the same time, that I think in the Middle Ages have no real difficulty uh, existing in that way. So on the one hand, there's a very strong argument uh, in current scholarship, in current historiography, and something that I pursue and and argue in the series, which is that religious devotion is at the core of people's decision to answer the call to crusade. But I also think there's, certainly in the the way the expedition plays out, there's an element of material gain, of acquisitiveness, of, of interest in booty and plunder, uh, that you cannot deny on the part of the First Crusaders. And what I, what I think is clear in the way events like this, the sack of Jerusalem in the summer of 1099 play out is that for those people participating, there seems to have been no disjuncture between the idea that they're doing the work of God and they should be rewarded with some kind of material uh, benefit when they take Jerusalem. Where I would slightly differ with the question is to say in terms of long-term prosperity or or territorial gain. Because one of the things we know with hindsight is that almost all the people who participated in the first crusade, the vast majority of them who survived, then went back to Europe after the crusade finished. So I don't think we can imagine that the whole crusade was conceived as a massive land grab, um, but but I'm not opposed to the idea that there's an element of materialism alongside spirituality.
2: Um, there's, there's another question which I've had from uh, uh, Matt Shaw on Twitter, which is along this theme, does anyone still disagree with Jonathan Riley-Smith on the motivation of the Crusaders, which I, I suppose is, is basically the same sort of question, but is there, how, much, how much contention is there about, about what motivated the Crusaders among the academic community?
3: Sure, uh, it's, a good, it's a good question, I think, because one of the other things that always strikes me about academic life is that things go in cycles, and you know, you know, a, a, an idea tends to, to hold its position maybe for a 30, 40 year cycle, and then people start popping up and saying, hang hey, on a minute, perhaps we can come up with a different way of looking at that. It's very true to say that Jonathan Riley Smith, um, back in late 70s, early 80s, started uh, putting forward some very, very powerful arguments on the basis of close reading of evidence, advocating this idea of a spiritual motivation being at the core. And really and that found also found expression in the work of one of his PhD students called Marcus Bull who wrote on knightly piety in certain areas of France. Um, but it's not as if this has been completely unchallenged. So there's a historian called Connor Costick, um, who's brought out a couple of books um, related to the First Crusade, but one of which is very much looking at other motivations, economic motivations, um, not just materialism. And, I th- you know, so there is an argument going on. Um, I'm personally not convinced that Kostic has has got it right, but I think he's got an interesting line of argument. And um, I guess I subscribe to the idea of of an approach to history where I don't think there is an end answer. If I ever thought that we got to the moment where we knew everything there was to know about the First Crusade and everyone was going to agree, I would actually be quite horrified because it would kill it as a subject. Mm. Um, So I don't think we're going to get to some ideal truth where we're going to know for sure that is the motivation, that's the end of it. Um, I think it's going to be an ongoing debate because it's the nature of our evidence.
2: But you don't see any particular contradiction between the idea of people going out there... Sincerely and piously, and then becoming more acquisitive and, and looking for opportunities when they get there.
3: Well, or not even, not even becoming more acquisitive. They may have had some idea that they, there may be a degree of material uh, reward even as they set off. We know certainly one of the, the characteristics of the First Crusade in particular is that it's not supported by any complex network of logistics. So they have to forage, they have to seek plunder as they pursue this expedition in order to sustain themselves. Um, Where Caustic is arguing and and where there's more, you know, more debate is about the the kind of stimulus that might make people want to leave Western Europe, how much was it to do with the economic situation in Europe, was Europe in in a situation where it couldn't take any more population growth, those are some of the ideas that have been, you know, espoused 30, 40 years ago, which I think, personally, I think, um, are, are less convincing.
2: Okay. Leading on from that, we've got uh, a question from uh, Marie A. Parsons, who has asked, what economic or other benefits, not just religious, in brackets, did the Crusader kingdoms reap for themselves in Europe? So so I I think she's asking, what she's trying to get at is, is, was there a flow of money back to Europe as a result of the Crusades?
3: There was to an extent. I don't think that we can... Uh, imagine that that was their primary, the primary reason why they were orchestrated uh, or even continuated or continued, I should say, through the 12th century. Um, And it's a bit too broad to say a a benefit for Europe. Um, Some of the major players that really are catapulted in a a much greater way onto the world stage in commercial terms are Italian city-states like Pisa, Genoa and Venice. And they certainly gain in their trading power and uh, ability to manifest their will in Eastern Eastern Mediterranean as a result of the Crusades. And the Crusades and the foundation of what we call the Crusader States, the Christian settlements in the Eastern Mediterranean, they certainly result in a developing conduit of trade between East and West, which has benefits for Europe but also has benefits commercially for uh, the Muslim Near East.
2: Okay, all right, moving on. Uh, a question from uh, Emir O. Filipovich. How instrumental was the belief of Crusaders in the success of the first Crusade, especially in the context of faced adversities? Now you did cover this a bit, I suppose, in the uh, in the in the siege of Antioch story where the, the the famously the holy lance is found and that seems to spur him on. but so so he's asking what was how important was the 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 belief in in pushing the Crusaders forward? Okay. Um,
3: Well, I think, personally, I think it's fantastically significant in terms of enabling the Crusaders to persevere and take, at certain points, take enormous risks that might not have been uh, undertaken or faced by an army in a more normative situation. I'm thinking in particular of the decision uh, in the spring of 1099, when the Crusaders in what we think of now as modern day Lebanon. And it makes a a fairly bold, almost suicidal decision to march straight on Jerusalem without conquering any cities on the way, basically without having any kind of escape route, Uh, conscious of the fact that Jerusalem is going to face um, a relief, the arrival of a relief army from Egypt within weeks, maybe a month and a half, which is what it turns out to be. And that the clock is going to be ticking throughout this period. and that they, you know, they've got to get to Jerusalem, they've got to take the city, or they're going to die. Um, and I think that is, from the, from the, the eyewitness testimony, which reveals actually um, how it was, not just the named knights or, or leaders, but the, the more ordinary crusaders who were calling, almost baying for this, this decision to be made, and forcing the hands of the leadership. I think we get a sense that that, that is at the heart, of religious devotion it is at the heart of that decision. At the same time, um, I've written extensively on this, uh, and there's also uh, a very important element in the first episode of the, the TV series. There are moments where I think we can try to understand the texture of the First Crusader's piety in a little bit more detail and a little more in a, in a bit more human light Uh, because it's long been argued that the discovery of the Holy Lance at Antioch in June 1098 was the key catalyst to their decision to then go out and face a Muslim relief army in battle. For me, there's a difficulty in the traditional story about the discovery of the Holy Lance um, because it's uh, found by Peter Bartholomew on the 14th of June 1098, but a decision to go to battle is not actually made for another 14 days until the 28th of June. And for a number of years now, I've been fascinated by what happened in those 14 days. Why was there this this delay when according to some eyewitnesses, you get the impression that the crusaders literally sprinted out of the gates of Antioch after finding the Holy Lance. Um, And there are a number of possibilities. uh, And I think one of the most intriguing is that suggested by uh, the testimony of uh, Armenian contemporary called Matthew of Edessa, who suggests that the first crusaders actually considered surrender at this point to the Muslim forces. And to me that gives a sense that although the Holy Lance provided uh, a boost to morale, it was not all encompassing or or overwhelming. And to me that gives a slightly more human sense of how these crusaders may have have operated. Even if they thought God was uh, giving them his backing by discovering the lance, that wasn't enough to send them to their deaths, to, to what they thought would be suicide effectively.
2: OK, we've got a slightly left field question here from uh, Katie Engelhart, who asks, how much were Crusaders paid and how long was the average anti-heretical tour of duty? So I'm not sure. Is, is there an answer to this?
3: In terms of um, duration, the only time when we start to get a more of a sense of there being a fixed term is when we get into the late 12th and really into the early 13th century. Uh, And in those, once we've got to that sort of more mature, developed period of crusading history, where some of the institutions of crusading uh, have been established, then in something like the Albigensian Crusade, a crusade launched into southern France uh, and the Pyrenees region, uh, against Cathar heretics, then we do see people expecting to only have to fight for one month, and that one month of, of fighting will be their term, and then they'll go back home. Uh, we see something similar uh, on an expedition, for example, the the Fifth Crusade into Egypt uh, in the late 12-teens and in the early 1220s, where people seem to have expected to fight for, say, a summer period and then return. And it's one of the things we also see changing in this period is the way people get to crusade is normally now by ship, and therefore it's actually possible for these people to sail into Egypt, do their three months and go home. And while that brings a... Uh, constant refreshing of manpower it also leads to quite a lot of destabilization uh, in crusading forces and a lack of ingrained determination to, to see uh, a war through. Reflecting back on what we were talking about earlier on with, say, the First Crusade and their, their utter determination to reconquer Jerusalem, that seems to ebb somewhat by the time of the Fifth Crusade. Um, but other than that we don't there, there aren't for all crusade forces a fixed term and neither is there a, a fixed term of pay. Again pay comes into the, the picture uh, around the time of the third Crusade we start to get details of what individual kings are paying knights uh, or those below knights to actually fight but the, there's no Fixed going rate and, the, and what you can do if you've got enough money is basically buy out someone else's knights so that they'll come over to your side and mm. start fighting for you as opposed to the the french king
2: if you were paid to go on crusade if you were a, a foot soldier paid would, would you still get the spiritual benefit of being a crusader in the, in the eyes of the medieval church yes yeah um, Okay, um, still on this, uh, on, on the period of uh, Saladin and the Third Crusade, uh, from James Torton on Twitter, if Philip II hadn't bottled it and gone home, would the Third Crusade have ended in Saladin's death and Christian victory? Did Philip II bottle it? Well, this,
3: I is, guess, this
2: is the French king, Philip Augustus. We'll, we'll this
3: is, yeah, so this is Philip II, Philip Augustus, uh, ruler of the Capetian House of France, um, rival to the Angevin House, which is, you could call it the English kingdom but it's also uh, a realm that has control of a large swathes of what we now think of French territory Um, and he's a major participant on the third crusade and arrives in Acre um, shortly before Richard the Lionheart uh, arrives in Acre in the spring summer of 1191 and what's distinctive about Philip is he he stays to see the the capture of Acre during the third crusade um, but relatively soon after that in the middle of the summer decides to go back home To say that he bottled it, uh, I think it depends about your perspective. Uh, In one way, you could argue he did exactly what you should do if you're a a sensible king, and if your priority is actually your kingdom at home. He came and he made his crusading vow, he fulfilled his crusading vow, which is, a lot of kings don't do that. So he actually went on crusade, Uh, travelled to the east, did something substantial helping in a a very significant way to take Acre, to move the crusade on, and then realized, I better get home, make sure my kingdom is not falling apart, and look after what's my primary concern, my crown. Um, Richard didn't do that, and because of that, because Philip had gone back to Europe and was a major rival to the Angevian world, I think from that moment onwards, Richard the Lionheart was constantly wondering about what Philip Augustus was going to do in his absence, whether Richard was actually going to come back to any kind of surviving Angevin realm. So it's, I, I would argue that one of the contributory factors, going back to the question is, if we think about a counterfactual way of interpreting the Third Crusade, is not so much what Philip would have contributed himself just, but also how that might have affected Richard the Lionheart's mindset and Richard's determination to try to get back to Western Europe uh, when he could, you know, at certain crunch points, especially the, the spring, summer of 1192. Um, so I think it's, it's there that the, the real significance comes, not so much in what Philip himself would have done because the, the majority of what we would call French crusaders, and is, these are very um, imprecise terms at this point, people who'd been in Philip Augustus's contingent, the majority of them stay and one way or another fight alongside Richard the Lionheart through much of the remainder of the Third Crusade.
2: Uh, we have got a, a tweet from Gareth Barnes, who I'm sure means this in a in a witty way. So don't, don't, don't take it. What does this series add that wasn't already presented by Terry Jones? Jones was funnier and wore male. Now Terry Jones, of course, Monty Python presented the series on Christmas. There's a, there's, a, there's a broader question here, isn't there It's like you're a historian, you're not really out to be funny. But how does how does making a TV program gel with being a, an academic historian?
3: Okay, well I definitely can't argue that I'm funnier than Terry Jones for sure. <laughs> um, I would say one one minor thing, uh, which is that I also didn't fire uh, catapult stones or trebuchet stones at at a beautiful castle in Turkey, which I'm sure wasn't Terry Jones' own decision. But and during that series, as a as a young PhD student working on the Principality of Antioch in the early 90s, when that series was being made, I was absolutely aghast to see that once the programme came out, that they they built a trebuchet and actually fired real stones at a real castle, uh, which just turned out to be my favorite castle in the world, a little-known castle called Qasat or Qasair, just near the border with Syria. So I didn't do that, I managed to step back from that uh, in the series. Uh, on the more substantial serious point, so I suppose two things, what, what have we done to advanced uh, understanding, and how does it gel with being an academic? Uh, of course, I, I can't argue that we've completely rewritten the history of the Crusades or our understanding of the Crusades. The series is, is based on uh, a book that I wrote, which was a single-volume history of the Crusades, which took me about six years to research and write. And it is very, very closely tied to that. And I, wouldn't, I think one of the things I'm pleased about and, and in some ways surprised about is that I, am, I do feel that the series is a representation of what I want to say, given the fact we had we were given three hours, no more than three hours, the budget we had, the time we had. I think it's the best job that we could have done, and, the, and, it, and it represents what I would want to say in that period. So I, I, I'm not going to come and state, oh, well, you know, they made me say this, they made me say that. It was a, it was a cut-down version of what we could have done. Within, that, within those constraints, I think it's the best job we could present. Alongside that, what I, what I argued for, and I was very pleased that we managed to hold on to, is that I wanted to have within each episode something that was new something that I thought could stand at the core of each episode and help to try to advance uh, general understanding and audience's understanding and and represent my own research so in episode one that was the uh, exploration of the impact of the Holy Lance at Antioch and the decision to then go to Venice and see this Armenian manuscript to discuss this alternative view of how the Lance might have affected uh, the progress of this crusade in episode two then it was Um, looking at Saladin's taking of Jerusalem in 1187 and the pretty controversial suggestion that he may have may have intended uh, to actually execute or massacre large sections of the Jerusalemite population at, at that point and Show the audience that actually that's not that suggestions not coming from some antagonistic Christian source it's actually coming from the source closest to Saladin himself a man called Ahmad al-Din, Ahmad al-din al-Ishfahani, uh, a Persian scholar who was by this point one of Saladin's scribes, almost his right-hand man, who came to Jerusalem just the day after it fell and is really t- showing us what Saladin wanted to say about his conquest. Um, so that was at the core of episode two and episode three, uh, the whole idea of the resonance of the, of the Crusades and how they uh, impact upon world history and how they may or may not have affected the relationship between Islam and the West. Because my, my current work in setting up a new master's program and a new center of, of excellence in the study of Islam and the West has made me think about the way crusade, where crusades sit in this much bigger picture uh, a lot over the last couple of years. And that, that meant that in episode three, one of the things I wanted to do most importantly was to try to give some time to think about what I perceive as the, the real impact of the crusades.
2: Um, another tweet, uh, which is specifically about the, the program, from Kaz. Um, how does a non-academic get to view some of the manuscripts that he saw? You, you looked at some of these lovely illuminated medieval texts all over the all over Europe and and and, and the Middle East. Are any of those available to be seen by by, by non Um Not easily. Um, I've picked up a couple of couple of comments online,
3: which are, which I think are quite funny. There's Um, so certain places people have said things like oh he does a good job of acting excited when he sees things, surely he's seen these things hundreds of times before and I think people um, don't realise exactly how some of how difficult some of these archives are to get into uh, and how preciously they protect certain objects Um, so certainly something like the Melisson Psalter, which is the most beautiful personal prayer book kept in the British Library Um, normally Uh, And this was owned by a woman called Queen Melisande, we think, uh, Queen of Jerusalem in the 1130s. And it's a sort of token of her relationship with her husband, King Fulk, but also, because of its decoration and its ornamentation, speaks of the world in which she lived. Um, It's no uh, understatement to say that I spent 20 years trying to get close to this this document, uh, this object. Uh, you can go, usually in what's known as the Joseph Ritblatt Gallery in the British Library, If you can see it open, the actual prayer book itself, open to one page. For quite a number of years they had it open uh, in that way there. But the, it's also very famous for its ivory covers. Uh, and they, sometimes they go into exhibition, but very often they're just completely kept under lock and key. the the, the elaborate organisation to enable us to actually film this was unbelievable one of the uh, curators spent an entire day working out the route that the box that these things were kept in was going to take through the British Library so that it would never go into any public space from where it's kept in the vaults to the room we were filming in because he's not permitted to allow it out of any secure (laughs) location and they were really really reticent about letting us anywhere near it and even I had to have a page turner for that particular manuscript. It's the only manuscript they wouldn't let me actually touch because they're so obsessed with its preservation. And you know, I, I can understand that, but I also think there's a, a balance between that and exactly as the person who's asking the question uh, states, allowing the public, the world at large, to be able to see these, these beautiful objects.
2: Um, so you were genuinely excited? I was
3: absolutely genuinely, genuinely excited, yeah.
2: I mean, it struck me when I was watching the, the series that, that that highlights one of the issues of being a historian of the Crusades is that these sources are disparate, spread out all over the place, and also that they're in numerous languages. I mean, you're looking at something in Armenian, Arabic, French, English. I mean, what, as a Crusades historian, do you need to have proficiency in all these different languages, and can you actually study these documents from afar?
3: No, well, sometimes you can study them from afar because you can see them in what we call a critical edition which is where you take um you take as many manuscripts as survive uh, as an academic you someone will consider them uh, consider the variations in each manuscript when different manuscripts were written and then produce a printed version and that might be that printed version might be available in in many different libraries around the world the truth is about being a crusade historian if you wanted to be the perfect crusade historian you probably need to have 10 12 languages um, and I, I've not met anyone yet who has that full array. Because you wouldn't just want um, medieval Latin, which if you're working from the Western perspective is an absolute must. Um, Arabic, you'd want to have Armenian, Syriac, Greek. There's, you know, there's like such an array of sources uh, that you could draw upon to get a full picture. And I, you know, so I, I don't have that full array of languages. Uh, I, use what I, I use what I can Um, and I consult what I can in terms of uh, manuscripts in original form, but very often we go back to uh, printed editions, um, and that that tends to be the bread and butter for most crusade historians, is going back to the printed versions, the critical editions, and then only referring to manuscripts where you think there might be a question over a particular reading, a particular presentation of a word.
2: Is there one sort of language area where people, where it's, you know, unstudied, where people don't, you know, historians just don't have that particular language, and and there might be some interesting insights to come from someone who who was able to develop uh, a skill in that language area?
3: Um, I think there is. I think Armenian, for example, is um, a very underrepresented language in terms of, not in terms of scholarship generally, um, although, Surely there could be you know, more Armenian specialists, but people who are working on the crusades using Armenian documents. And there are a number, but I think there's, there's much to be said for the further study of that, not least because uh, Christian Armenia becomes a major player in the northern crusader states in the late 12th and into the early 13th century and becomes a, a vital ally for those northern crusader states. Um, and the source, source base, I think, could be, you know, much could be done with that, with, with closer reading both of the printed editions and the manuscripts.
2: Uh, what should we do next? Oh, here's a good question from uh, John Giebe, I think John Giebfried from St. Louis, uh, who emailed um, He's an ex-student. Ah, uh, right, okay. Well, he's asking the question, who is responsible for numbering the Crusades and why were some, uh, for instance, the Albigensian and the, Crusade, the Children's Crusades, not numbered?
1: Mm.
3: Well, it's a, it's a kind of, it's the result, really, of 19th and 20th century uh, scholarship, which and is very much an imposition on the medieval world as opposed to a reflection of the way in which most medieval contemporaries would have thought about crusading history. Um, I mean, we could even debate whether it's right to call the First Crusade the First Crusade. It's the f- we now look at it and think of it as the first of its type. Um, certainly it was seen as something new to medieval contemporaries, uh, but they didn't have a word, crusade, at the time that it had occurred. So for them it was known as a pilgrimage, a journey, um, carrying out the work of God. Uh, and it was only in the late 1180s, uh, 1130s, that we start to see the emergence of words like cruce signatus, one who bears the symbol of the cross, from which eventually we get words like uh, the French word croissade, bearer of the cross, which leads to crusade. Um, and then, in the nineteenth and twentieth century, <clears throat> we see an increasing move to try to to try to, um, to, to categorise these different crusades, to identify crusading ventures that were deemed to be um, the big crusades, the major crusades of the twelfth and thirteenth century. So, for example, the, from the First Crusade we get to the Second Crusade preached in 1144, which leads to um, actual military action between 40, 1147 and But there were arguably a number of crusades preached in between that, that were smaller ventures, had fewer men, sometimes very few men, um, that, and some of, some of which were not just to the Holy Land. Already we see uh, in the 1120s the preaching of what looks like a crusade into the Iberian Peninsula. So, uh, depending on how you number the Crusades, you could come up with a, a very different total from the eight or nine major Crusades that are sometimes described from the the classic period, ten ninety five to twelve ninety one. You could you could get up into the the tens, the twenties, even perhaps even beyond that total. Uh, and I think it's where where it's worth being aware of this is and realizing this is the degree to which we as modern historians are. Um, affecting and interpreting, and to some degree manipulating our understanding of the past. We're putting shape on it that might not, and that shape might not have been apparent to people actually living in the Middle Ages.
2: So, in the sense, does the ordering the Crusades slightly hamper academic study? Then, in a sense, sort of lead you to look in one direction in a in a, in a Victorian way, in some way. I think it does.
3: It does, to an, an extent, it gives you sense that um, just using the word gives you the idea that there was a very distinct identity to this idea of crusading right from the start. And I think that is very misleading. Mm. Uh, I think it's a much more malleable and ill-defined idea through, for example, the first 50 years of of its existence through the the first half of the 12th century. Uh, It wasn't necessarily a war that had to be fought against Muslims in that period. There's been a long debate over an early example of a crusade being what we now would call, uh, or historians some call, being diverted against uh, a different enemy, actually, as a crusade preached against the Byzantine Empire, against the Eastern Christian Empire, uh, with its base at Constantinople. And historians long argued that this is, you know, this is extraordinary. How could, how could crusading, so recently after its birth, be diverted, be... Um, maligned in this way to to go against uh, supposedly a natural ally and to me actually what that represents is not the not some kind of uh, diversion or uh, misdirection of crusading it's just a natural expression of the fact that crusading hasn't really got a set identity at this point and we've imposed that identity as historians from from afar
2: okay um I had a, a tweet from someone who i think is actually one of your current um students um uh, andrew buck does that ring a bell it certainly does, one of, my, one of my very skilled and talented PhD students. So I asked him to, uh, to come up with a question that would be really difficult for you, but he, he declined that opportunity <laughs> and, and, and instead asked, uh, uh, who is your favourite figure from the Crusading era? Is there someone who you particularly find interesting?
3: Wow, that's a tough, that is actually quite a tough question. <laughs> not, not academically tough, but personally tough. Um, I'm not sure I could come up with one, if you'll allow me two. Certainly. So I'll have one famous one and one less famous one. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was going to go for the famous one I couldn't really escape Saladin Um, if I was going to be uh, if I was going to critique my own work and if I was going to uh, try to undermine my own book on the Crusades I would argue really that the Crusades in in real terms is a very extended biography of Saladin I mean it's a kind of very heavily contextualised biography of Saturday where you get to hear everything that happened before him and everything that happened after him but it allows you to understand him as a man and I can't deny that for a good five years or so I was utterly fascinated uh, by his career and really immersed myself uh, in the material surrounding his life and I guess the thing that makes him so extraordinary to me is that you every now and again you get a glimpse of him as a human being and the kind of humanity. Uh, that peers through that you don't see necessarily in other individuals, in part because they may have been more tyrannical, more despotic, uh, more ruthless. And I think th- all of those characteristics are, are elements within Saladin's makeup. We shouldn't see him as some kind of perfectly pious, gentle, and clement idealized ruler. He certainly wasn't that. Um but I think he is a man if you understand him in his context who stands apart from the medieval norm in that he is by the standards of his day more interested in the ideas of justice uh, certainly I would argue from um, around 1186 more devoted and determined to fight in the name of the cause he's chosen which is the taking of Jerusalem and then the defense of Jerusalem uh, in the interests of Islam and I'm persuaded that if you, if you do do what I've tried to do, which is to really put him in context, that's when he stands apart. Um, that's where he becomes most remarkable. Uh, and for someone who's uh, less well-known, uh, it's partly not just so much, I guess, the figure himself, but it's also just the fun actually being a medieval historian and actually recovering the life of someone who no one else really cares about. That, that in itself is, is kind of a, uh, a particular joy and so that would have to be uh, someone called Robert Fitzfalk the Leper, who was an early settler in the Principality of Antioch, held a number of uh, strategically important sites in the Principality, uh, seems at one point to have even established a friendship with the local Muslim ruler of Damascus uh, in the 11 uh, teens, uh, and was a major player in the Principality. But one of the things that makes him so then so, then so fascinating is he's subsequently captured by this same Muslim uh, leader and actually executed, um, having thought that he was gonna get clement treatment. The Muslim ruler took Teigen, decided to decapitate him on the spot and have his head turned into a jewel-encrusted drinking cup. And I guess it's that sort of, power, like that sort of combination of um, his life, his, his fascinating name, spoke the Leper. We know very little about his life, whether he was a leper, whether he was the son of a leper and then his slightly grim ending, which um, always made him an attractive character for me. Right.
2: Um, We've got a a couple here which I'll conflate because I I suspect you might want to answer in the same way. Um, uh, One from Dan Owens which is, why did they stop crusading? And uh, one from James Aitchison, why were there no concerted efforts by the Latins to reconquer the Holy Land after the fall of Acre in 1291?
3: Okay. So, well, I mean, one answer... to say that they didn't stop crusading um, and they didn't give up entirely on the Holy Land so the fall of Acre in 1291 certainly prompted a a reaction in the West it prompted a a high degree of shock um, of questioning not least the questioning of you know if this is God's work if God supports the idea of crusading how can this have occurred Um, and it prompted For example, the the writing uh, of a whole series of treatises on the idea of of what must now be done to reconquer the Holy Land. And uh, in the late 13th and on into the 14th century, there was lots of talk of launching further crusades, further crusading ventures, some of which got off the ground in in small scale. Very briefly, even in um, 1365, um, a crusading force managed for a short period of time to, to, re, to take control of Alexandria in Egypt. Um, and then in the future uh, decades and centuries, crusading as an idea did continue, did continue to be utilized by what we'd now call the Catholic Church. Um, but most crusades were then targeted either against uh, heretics, against Muslim opponents in Eastern Europe uh, such as the Ottomans, uh, or against the political enemies of um, the papacy so it 's not as if the idea of crusading um, disappeared off uh, of the radar entirely after twelve ninety one there is a more uh, there is however i think an interesting subtext to the question um, which is in a way to say well, how how did it happen how did twelve ninety one happen how shocked was Europe really that the Holy Land had fallen and I think it's easy to imagine somehow that every single person who lived in Western Europe every morning woke up with with dawn and thought to themselves, "My God, what's happening in the Holy Land?" You know, they're utterly obsessed with it; that they thought about it every moment of their waking lives. Um, And I think that is entirely an illusion. I think um, the fate of the Holy Land, the fate of what we now call the Crusader states, was significant, but it was never enough to completely Um, drive Western Europe in terms of a war effort, in terms of continuing uh, a constant flow of supply, support, manpower to the embattled Near East. Um, And that's largely because it's geographically distant, because of course, Europe itself is far from a peaceful and and placid environment. There are lots of uh, localized wars, localized difficulties taking place that are obsessing uh, population and ruling elites. And so the distant Holy Land often takes second place or even fourth or fifth place uh, alongside those other considerations. And I guess it, it's important to recognize that 1291, the fall of the did not come out of the blue. There had been many uh, moments along the path of that, to that event where disasters were, were occurring, where the West was al- alive to the fact that this was a downhill slope that they were you know, hurtling uh, hurtling down and that many appeals had come from the Holy Land requesting assistance and almost all of these had been ignored. Um, and I think why it's so important to recognize this is just you know, to recognize not everyone was obsessed, not everyone was focused or channeling their energy towards the defense of the Holy Land. It was a peripheral war, a frontier war.
2: Let's move on to one from Michael Ranser, who's who's particularly interested in in what happened to the Jewish population in the Crusades. He wants to know um, uh, how large was the Jewish population um, and did they play any role in the battles and how were they treated by the Crusaders um, during and after battle in contrast to how Muslims were treated? Lots of questions there.
3: Okay, so I'm I'm assuming the question is to do with um, Jews living in the Near and Middle East as opposed to Jewish populations in Europe because obviously they um, experience some some horrors at the hands of of armies like the First Crusaders who carry out pogroms against the Jews um, in the Rhineland uh, before they they actually leave Europe and head for the Holy Land. Um, So in terms of the treatment, uh, survival and treatment of the Jewish population um, in what we might call the Crusader states. I think we have to avoid sort of extre- you know, the extremities of, a, of the argument. So one, one suggestion has been uh, in the past, for example, that when Jerusalem is taken, the entire population of Jerusalem in 1099, both Muslim and Jewish, is massacred. Uh, I don't think the closest and best evidence bears that out. Uh, and I'm here talking about something like the Geniza documents, the Geniza letters written by Um, the Jewish population towards the end of the 11th century, closest eyewitness testimony we really really have to these events, um, reflecting that Jews did survive in Jerusalem, as did Muslims, that the the total number of dead was was certainly less than um, 70,000, which is the the highest estimate we get from uh, Muslim testimony. Um, So I don't think um, Jews are entirely uh, wiped out in something like the Kingdom of Jerusalem. However, we shouldn't go to the we shouldn't swing the pendulum the other fully to the other direction and say that um, the the new Christian overlords of the Near East were suddenly far more tolerant and understanding of of Jewish populations within their lands. Um, because what what becomes clear when you look at the twelfth and thirteenth century uh, world of say the Kingdom of Jerusalem is that what mattered was not just being a, not just being a Christian but actually being a Western European Christian, and that it was something of a two-tier society in that way in which even even eastern christians uh, were categorized as very different from western christians and so you have the kind of the the crowd or the the group that are part of the ruling elite those from what we call the latin west and then jews eastern christians muslim population largely uh, bundled together as a second secondary group of population and so I suppose that the treatment sits somewhere between massacre and full um, uh, coexistence, it's, it's somewhere in the middle ground.
2: Okay, we'll just do one more, I think, um, uh, which is a fairly specific tweet, I, I failed to, to take down the, uh, the, the the tweeter's name, but I'll find that and record afterwards. Why didn't you talk about the German Crusades of the 13th century in your TV series? Um, I presume there's a fairly simple reason that you only had three hours, but <coughs> yeah. You want to? Well, um, well,
3: I think there's a more fundamental question at the heart of that, which is, is how you organize your material, I guess. Um, and an easy answer uh, would be to just say, well, we, exactly, you just said we had three hours, and what are you going to put in three hours? And that is a, that is a very tough task to decide what goes in, what doesn't go in. And there is you know, an ocean of material that I had to, to put to one side, some of my most treasured, Uh, Events from this period, you know some of the things some of the analysis some of the individuals, some of the sources that are most important to me that didn't make it anywhere near the series Um, I I think more Substantively however something I'd want to say is that I, I do believe that if you're going to try to Make something comprehensible for a general audience and you're going to try to allow an audience to follow uh, a subject that is that is as encompassing as the crusades that covers two centuries of history and could could easily, we could have taken it to five centuries and beyond if we wanted to look at later crusading in other theatres of war. Um, if you want to do that, then you have to find some kind of um, principles that will allow you to give shape. And so my principle, both in writing um, the book on which the series is based and, and it lay at the heart of the series as well, was to look at the, what we call the war for the Holy Land, so the contest for control of Jerusalem and the wider Holy Land. And uh, that contest being fought between the start of the First Crusade, 1095, and the, the fall of Acre in 1291. And that lay at the heart of how I organised my material for, for my book and lay at the heart of the, 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 the structure of this three-part series. And I, I wouldn't represent uh, what we've, either what I've written in my book or in the series as, as a, a history of the total um, crusading past in any Shape or form it is a slice of crusading history, and I think certainly in a three part series that's the, that's the best that we can offer
2: actually there is one more thing that plays on for you, which is a, a tweet from colf 's history department does serious historical revisionism ever premiere on telly I suppose there's a, there's a question about how far you can um, t- <coughs> uh, present something which is A revision of of other people's views on on a given topic on TV when people may not know what the original view was Mm. so how difficult is that to you know present an academic argument when you've also confined by having to present a narrative for a a TV audience yeah
3: I think it's very difficult Um, and I go back to what I said earlier on that that really I, I held on to the idea that in each episode I would try to do that once uh, and to be honest, I feel I feel fairly lucky that we um, we were able to to do it once because the most difficult thing is to to stop your narrative and say, well, hang on a minute, this is what we thought, uh, this is what this historian thought, this is what this historian thought, and now I'm going to tell you this. And I think for, in most circumstances in television, what you are unable to do is to is to talk at any great length about what people have thought before. Um, you pretty much have to just set it up and say, this is the established understanding, now I'm gonna tell you um, what my view is. And that is a bit reductive, and it is it is simplifying events, it's, it's rejecting this idea or turning away from this idea that history might go and be cyclical in terms, in terms of interpretation, that history might be very much open to interpretation, um, and that there isn't a singular truth at the heart of our understanding of this past. Um, but within the confines of, of one hour of television, um, I think it, there, it's hard to go any further than that.
2: So was there one story that you really wanted to get in that you were, you were unable to? Well, if, you, if you'd had three hours and, and 10 minutes, what, was the, what would be the story you'd have slotted in?
3: Wow, that's a really tough question. Well, so, well we shot it and it didn't go in, so, so I'll tell you about that. Um, we actually went to Petra um, for two, two, three days to shoot some extraordinary material about the early settlement of the Crusader states. So Petra is the most remarkable series of ruins, um, a ruined civilization from the Nabataean period, so centuries before the advent of the Crusades, um, in Jordan. Um, and within the confines of Petra itself, there's one Crusader castle that survives. And just on the fringes of of uh, the ruins of Petra, another, another crusader castle, was also built. And we went to both of these sites to talk about the difficulties of settling in the Holy Land. And um, especially in a place like, like Petra in modern-day Jordan, very much a, an arid desert environment. And we were able to persuade an archaeological team to bring along the skeletal remains of uh, bodies they'd found buried in rock cut graves in this second castle, Al And it was an extraordinary moment. We, we sat in, in amongst these ruins and I held uh, the bones of an uh, um, eight to 12 month old child uh, who had died in the Holy Land during this early wave of settlement, almost certainly because of malnourishment, malnutrition, because they were unable to adjust their diet. To the needs of uh, the Levant, and also unable to get enough fresh fruit in this uh, slightly hostile environment in which they were living. And for me, because I'm not an archaeologist, you know, on the very, you know, very simple terms, it, it's remarkable, it's extraordinary to come that close to the physical remains of someone who lived through this world. Um, and at the same time, it for me it evoked this idea of how fragile. Um, the Latin Christian or Western Christian foothold in the Near East was in the early 12th century. So that was a story I very much wanted to tell. Was also, not surprisingly, given how amazing Petra is, visually it was utterly fantastic, it just proved to be impossible to get it into uh, episode two.
2: Thank you very much for that, for answering those wide ranging questions. You've, I think you've demonstrated your, your depth of scholarship there by being able to talk about, um, uh, well, you know, everything, Pretty much everything about the Crusader, I think we covered. So thank you very much for your time.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
2: That was Tom Asbridge. His most recent book, The Crusades, The War for the Holy Land, is published by Simon & Schuster. Thanks to all of you who sent questions in, and apologies to Mark Douglas for missing his details at the end there. It was he who asked the question about the German Crusades. I think this made for a very interesting discussion, but you may disagree. So if you like what we've done here, we can do more, ask the historian slots. Um, So if you just tell me if you think this is a good or bad approach, by the usual mechanisms, that's via Twitter, twitter.com slash history extra, facebook.com slash history extra, or just by email to podcast at history then we'll see whether we should carry on with it. And if you do like the format and want more, uh, it would be great to know what subjects, themes or historians you'd like us to try and cover in the future. That's it for this week's episode. Just a reminder that if you want to take up the offer of the free issue, you need to call the number 0844 776 0306. That offer is only available for UK delivery addresses and is subject to availability. So if you do want to get hold of a free copy of BBC History magazine, call that number before 29th February. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. Next week we'll be looking at the influential Tudor tome known as Fox's Book of Martyrs. Thank you as ever for listening. I hope you'll stay with us for our next 100 editions.